0: When we, for a brief moment this morning. Good to be back, good to have you back. Mid 20s today, it will be just like spring. Let's go ahead, and I'm going to start in verse number 14 and read down to the end of the chapter. 2 Corinthians 6, verse number 14. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, what communion hath light with darkness, what concord hath Christ with Belial, or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel, And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said. I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your eternal existence, for your unchanging nature. Thank you for creating the church and your ministry to the church. We are your people. We live in an ever-changing world, and we pray for wisdom and grace to understand your word and apply it properly. And I pray, Father, that our review of some religious history will prove beneficial to us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, just to reorient us uh, <clears throat> uh, on where we are in Sunday school, which we began actually the the first of the year, we had spent some time dealing with denominations, and of course I dealt with them primarily through the lens of Bible doctrines, and it just got me to thinking and that so many of our denominational differences are not about the doctrine, but about the application of the doctrine, and we do not apply doctrines in a laboratory or, you know, in a vacuum, we live. <clears throat> and we live in a world that, in which things are going on and we are bringing Bible doctrines to bear on that. So to that extent, what we started to do on the 7th, and of course none of us were here last week, we come, so this is really the second lesson. I wanted to just, I want to take some time and review some of the major influences on America's religious history. On some of the things that have worked to shape us, that in things with with which we have been compelled at times to bring the Bible to bear on what is going on. and we do not always all do that in the same way, and that creates some of the problems. So <clears throat> what I attempted to do two weeks ago on the seventh was just lay a very brief foundation of how it is that we came to be broadly, a country filled with Protestants. And I'm using that language deliberately. There is a lot of academic discussion and a lot of church discussion about whether or not we are a Christian nation. Um, I would argue that however we might view it, constitutionally we are not. Uh, The First Amendment to the Constitution precludes um, the establishment of any national religion And no oath of office, religious oath of office, may be imposed upon any person taking an office. And those are just a couple of the things that we decided constitutionally in order to address something that is going to become a huge part of early American history, and that is the role of government in church. And we'll come back to this. What is the role of government? What is the role of civil government when it comes to the church, does the, does the civil government have any religious mission? And if so, what is the nature of that mission? And, and that will be a huge sort of Damocles that hangs over our heads to this day. What is the role of government in church? So England had become officially and legally Protestant, and again, without trying to go back and revisit the lesson and without dealing all the history, folks, England was, in its earliest days, when Henry VIII got Act of Parliament to pass the Act of Supremacy that made him the head of the church, England became legally a Protestant church, but practically it remained a Catholic church. The only thing that differed in all of the Church of England was that the Pope was no longer in charge, Henry VIII was. And Henry VIII was, whatever else he might have been, was a hardcore Roman Catholic in his practices. And so we have, a, we have a situation in which we have a legal Protestant church that is endorsed by and supported by the government, but in practice is Roman Catholic. Now, when this act is passed, the Protestant Reformation is in full, full bloom, And there are many Englishmen who are completely and totally unsatisfied with that and there's all kinds of back and forth. But that is how it begins. And one of the things that this means, and again, without going back, right? Henry died his son. Edward took over. Edward died his daughter. Mary took over. Mary died his daughter. His other daughter, Elizabeth, took over. And it was back and forth and everybody was contending with their varying religious interpretations. And so you might find yourself being religiously on the outs or religiously permitted. And under Elizabeth, with her Elizabethan settlement, you know she basically tried to cool things off by granting some accommodations to everybody, which made nobody happy. And that was the way the world worked. <clears throat> okay? Those people who viewed themselves primarily as outsiders to all of this, who were religious but not supportive of the Church of England, were known at various times and by various people with a collection of names. They were called dissenters, or they were called Puritans, or they were called nonconformists, or they were called separatists. And all of those words, folks, and they all have a place, and sometimes they have a very technical place. But all of those words, remember, doctrines don't exist in vacuums. To be a Puritan, to be a separatist, to be a dissenter, to be a nonconformist, was always looking at one thing, and that was the Church of England. It was the established church. So that if you dissented, you dissented from the established church. If you separated, you separated from the established church. If you didn't conform, you didn't conform to the established church. That was the sphere, right? So, I mean, we just read this passage, and I'm not going to try and expound the passage, and we've all looked at the passage. And, but probably when I read the passage, the United States government never crossed your mind. But 500 years ago, we would have read that passage in light of what that meant to being a member of the Church of England. Am I, am I going to conform or am I not going to conform? Am I going to take exception and become a dissenter? Am I going to make a beeline away and become a separatist? It is all oriented around the Church of England. <clears throat> Some of those people ended up here. And many of those people ended up here for those very reasons. And that was kind of where we had, we, I had kind of walked us through that history. You can go back and listen to it if you care about English history and the English Reformation, <clears throat> a little bit about that. And we found many of those people living on our shores. And I just kind of want to start then. My, my beginning point this morning is kind of talking about some of these varying people and groups as they existed and developed in what would become the United States of America. We begin, of course, with Jamestown 1607, the first permanent English settlement in the New World. The Settlement at Jamestown, Virginia is constituted of religious people, to be sure, but it is an economic venture. The people who come have one objective, and that is, or maybe multiple objectives, but religious freedom is not what drives them. Uh, The possibility for advancement, the opportunity to make money, freedom from whatever might else be going on, it is commercial in nature. And the Jamestown colony is officially and legally, and, and, and I, when I say legally, right, in order to come to the new world, the king has to grant permission to come to the new world. And, and that is done through a charter. There is a, a written document that will establish what you may do and, and some of the rules for going. And, and who may go? So, so this Jamestown colony is legally by charter and establishment Church of England. It is Anglican. And if you wanted to get on one of the boats and come to Jamestown, Virginia, because <clears throat> you were, and this was not uncommon, a young man who thought it would be cool to come over and make your way There were several steps that you had to take apart from figuring out how to pay for the boat ride. Which you might do by selling yourself into servitude. Or if you had wealthy parents, or if you had your own money. But in order to come, you had to, first of all, swear an oath of allegiance to the king. That although you were getting on a boat traveling 3,000 miles to the west coming to a complete and total wilderness, which, folks, is one of the things that almost never crosses our mind when we talk about these folks. What is there in the world that is so important to you that you would leave indoor plumbing to find it? Or that you would give up cell phone service to pursue it? These people left... England was one of the most advanced civilizations in the world, primitive certainly by American standards today. But by the 17th century standards, it was one of the premier cultures in the world. And you gave it up to come over here, folks, to live in a forest. That's what there was, trees. Trees and rocks and dirt. So these people were very motivated to come. Anyway, to go back to this, right? You had to take an oath of allegiance to the king. That although I am leaving England and settling in a colony, it is the king's colony and I am still an Englishman and I will always be loyal to the king. And that means, secondly, that you had to repudiate any allegiance or authority of the pope. Not only am I loyal to the king, I am a loyal Englishman. I am a Protestant and not a Catholic. And I will not come over here and and attempt to establish what they called Roman Catholic practices, in my colony. And in fact, in the earliest days of the Jamestown settlement, you had to promise to be a practicing Anglican. That, that you had to attend Church of England services and live as an Anglican in, in the colony. And if, otherwise, you couldn't come. Otherwise, you just, you just couldn't come. So that's Jamestown, and we are grateful for Jamestown, but again, folks, while it has its own religious history and Virginia will develop its own religious heritage, Jamestown is not established as a religious colony, but two of the main ones are, and much of New England is then ultimately established by people who have, and I am going to put it this way, but it's, it's harsh, it's not as, I don't mean it as harshly as it sounds, who had some religious axe to grind. And, and that's why they went off and established their own little colony. <clears throat> the second of the New England colonies, and one of the most famous, is, of course, the Plymouth Colony. Plymouth, Massachusetts, the Mayflower Pilgrims, they came over in 1620. You can still, to these days, if you go to Boston, you can go to Plymouth, and you can go out, and there's Plymouth Rock. It's still their little monument to Plymouth Rock. These are the famous pilgrims their legal charter was to come to the Virginia Territory. And the Virginia Territory, I mean, when they made these claims, folks, you know, they just kind of made these wild claims. The Virginia Territory was massive in size. It was actually the modern-day state of Virginia as well as the modern-day state of West Virginia, probably a little more territory than that. So a massive tract of land. And the Mayflower Pilgrims had legal permission to come to the Virginia Charter and establish their own separate colony. This was what they were going to do. And this is in light of the fact that they, most of them had not been living in England. And again, without getting too far into the history, right, the people that came over on the Mayflower were not completely and totally religious settlers. A sizable portion of them were just Englishmen who were coming over for, again, whatever economic gain they might find or whatever adventure they might have or whatever trouble they might escape. So it wasn't that we filled the boat with them. When the boat is on its way, it gets blown, of course, that much is established as historical fact, and it ends up near Massachusetts, about 400 miles north of Virginia territory so their legal permission is within the boundaries of Virginia but they are 400 miles away from Virginia and then what follows is one of the most famous parts of American history but also one of the most controversial the men and it is all the men and not just all the men the men who are free and not indentured servants meet together on the boat, have a meeting, recognize that they're 400 miles away from Virginia. They know how to sail the Atlantic Ocean, folks. They know where they are. They recognize that they're low on provisions. And so on board the Mayflower, they sign the Mayflower Compact, which is a binding document to them that is an acknowledgement of the fact that they're, they're not legally on British territory And so they bind themselves together with this covenant of conduct and guardian and laws, and then they get off the boat and they decide not to sail to Virginia and they establish the Plymouth Colony. Now, about 70 years down the road, that's going to come back to haunt them because the king is going to go, You never had legal permission to be there, so you no longer have legal permission to exist. And Plymouth Colony will become part of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, but that's another story. So, those are our kind of spiritual ancestors. About half of the people on the Mayflower were true religious pilgrims. And these were people who were truly separatists. They had come to the conclusion that the Church of England was wrong in all of its, many of its practices and in some of its doctrine and they could no longer stay, and in not staying, they basically became criminals in the land of England, and they moved to Holland, and Holland was much more tolerant and free in its religious practices in those days. It was officially Protestant, but oftentimes it was more nominally Protestant than it was anything. And so these people began to settle in Holland, but there were problems in Holland, And it wasn't that they were persecuted, it's that they were foreigners. And they feared that their children would lose their English identity by being Dutch and would learn to speak Dutch instead of English. And they feared that because one of the things, folks, look around you. One of the things that you have when the government grants true religious freedom to people is that inevitably a large portion of them choose that freedom to practice no religion at all And frequently, they practiced godlessness as a legal right. And so the pilgrims were very concerned about the moral decay of Holland and about the foreign influence of Holland. And they began to seek a way to go. And so they got on the Mayflower, those that could, and they came. And of course, this is a very abbreviated, if you're an American history guy, you know that I'm I'm just giving you some of the very basic highlights. There was a lot to that whole story. So they are part of this commercial venture that has as its responsibility to make money for the crown. Right? This is right. If you're the king sitting in England and, you, and somebody says to you, "What are you doing, letting these people go to the new world?" He's going, "I'm hoping they make me money." Right? New territories for the crown, new resources for the crown, new wealth for the crown. This is what is driving them. <clears throat> so. If you could look at that Mayflower, and again, if you go to Boston, they have, and my wife and I were there in, well, I, I can, we were there in 2007. And I remember that because in 2007, they were having an anniversary in 1957, the year that I was born. That Mayflower replica actually sailed from England to the United States. And so because that was the, the anniversary of that It was free for us to get on the Mayflower and walk around the deck of the Mayflower. On that Mayflower, you were either a pilgrim, which was one of the religious settlement, or you were a stranger. And those who were members of the Church of England, who were just Englishmen, who wanted to go make a new life for themselves, they were strangers. And they band together and they formed this colony, the Plymouth Colony. And this is the point in time at which I would remind you folks that technically, but it's really not a technicality, there is a critical difference between being a pilgrim and being a Puritan. And they're often used interchangeably, and sometimes you can just get away with that. I, I just read a short book on the Salem witch trials, and, you know, the guy right out of the gate just kind of made me mad because he's calling the Puritans pilgrims. And the Puritans were not pilgrims, and the Pilgrims were not Puritans. The Pilgrims were separatists. We do not want to be a part of the Church of England. The Puritans were willing to be a part of the Church of England if the Church of England would give up all of its Roman Catholicism. That is a major monumental difference between the two of them. And one of the big distinctions between them, folks, one of the major distinctions between them is a discussion over the role of government in the church. Does civil government have a religious role? Does civil government have authority over a congregation? Can the government tell the church what to do? Now we're still talking about that 400 years later. We will always be talking about that. But that was a major part of what they did. The prevailing sentiment sentiment of the Church of England people that extended to the Puritans was that not only government religious in character, that a true government should be constituted of godly people, but that a legitimate government was religious in function. And again, this is probably, and I'm not trying to insult you, and if you already think this way, that's, that's great. You're, you're well ahead of the learning curve. But in America, you probably don't think about the fact That the government is heavily involved already in six of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill. Who deals with murder? The church or the civil government? Civil government. Thou shalt not steal. Who addresses matters of thievery? The church or civil government? Civil government. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Where are divorces handled? By the church or civil government? Where are sex crimes? And there are still sex crimes in America as loose as we have gotten. Where are they addressed? In the civil courts. But in America, folks, the, church, the civil government has no role in the first four commandments. If you violate the Sabbath day, The civil government in America has no part in that. But in the Puritan world, the civil government not only had the responsibility to address the final six of the Ten Commandments, the civil government had a responsibility over the first four of the Ten Commandments. Their religious matters were the purview of the church. So that, for instance, right, at a church like Westwood Heights, we might remove you from membership for some conduct. By our Constitution, unless you have a legitimate reason, like illness or you're a shut-in, and you do not attend services for six months, you are automatically dropped from the church membership rolls. But we do not turn your name over to the government as if you are some kind of religious truant so that a couple of police officers show up at your door on Monday and go, how come you weren't in church yesterday? (laughs) And we're laughing because we're Americans and we're 400 years away from the Puritans, but that's what they did. That's what they did. That's the kind of things that they did, and that was the way that they thought. So we've talked briefly about Jamestown, and we've talked briefly about the pilgrims and now we need to talk to really the people who are the main when we talk about religion and we think about the Puritan world, we need to talk specifically about the Puritans. Now <clears throat> well, let me go back before I do that, let me just mention a couple things about Plymouth Colony, right? <clears throat> if I want already covered this. right? They were separatists. They had already left the Church of England. They had already made their break from the Church of England. They developed a form of church government called Congregationalism. They've gone to the Bible, and they believe that every congregation is responsible for itself. Okay? So we're good with that. Uh, You may have heard the name William Bradford. Bradford was the first governor of this colony. He wrote a book that is worth reading, if you have any interest in religious history, called Of Plymouth Plantation, that talks about the establishment of it. So, I've already mentioned they practiced congregational government authority, so they did not believe in national authority over the church. They believed in congregational authority over the church. And the only relationship that the church had with civil government, apart from abiding by the Six Commandments, the final Six Commandments, was that the government's responsibility was to provide military protection for the people of the church. The pilgrims in Plymouth permitted a much larger degree of religious freedom. But they did require religious practice. This is one of their laws. It was passed June 6, 1651. That whatsoever person or persons shall neglect the frequenting of public worship of God. That is, according to God, in the places where they live, or do assemble themselves under any pretense whatsoever contrary to God, and the allowance of the government tending to the subversion of religious churches, or palpable profanation of God's holy ordinances, being duly convicted, visibly everyone that is a master or a dame of a family or any other person of their disposing to pay ten shillings for each such default. So you have a more religious freedom but you have to observe biblical Christianity or you will be fined. And as I've already mentioned and there's just again if you're an American history person, the colonies developed their own kind of identities, their own characteristics, their own forms of government. This is pretty much true up and down the eastern seaboard. England, meanwhile, is experienced its own religious or its own political turmoil and changes of kings. And finally, James II decides that he is going to get a grip on the colonies, and he establishes what is known as the Dominion of New England. And <clears throat> he appoints a governor, he sends a man from England over and he says to these colonies, You answer to me. I don't care about your colony charters and they're all kind of lumped together and it creates a fascinating, from a history standpoint, a fascinating time in colonial history because you have England claiming to be one government and colonies claiming to be another government and the whole thing. But anyway, in all of that, Plymouth Colony loses its identity and is incorporated into the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And so it is, it is taken over. Not not willingly, not voluntarily, but legally it loses its identity. So that brings me then to the Massachusetts Bay Colony, which <clears throat> gets its existence in 1629. If you're a datekeeper, the history is not about the dates, but 1607, 1620, 1629. The Massachusetts Bay Colony is the colony that is founded by the Puritans, not the pilgrims. And these are people who have a love and allegiance for the Church of England, but they want to reform it. And specifically what they want to do is get rid of all Romanist practices. And this is going to to touch on things like garments, or what were called vestments, the wearing of clerical collars, the wearing of robes, This is is going to involve religious practices, views about the Lord's Supper, views about saving ordinances. It is an inescapable part of our discussion, folks, that we're going to have to touch upon. Calvinism and its counterpart, Arminianism. Because the accusation was that the Roman Catholic Church was Arminian and the Puritans were Calvin. Calvinist, and the Church of England was supposed to be Calvinist. And then the king would appoint an Arminian head, pre, head, head arch, bi, archbishop, and the, the fight would be on once again. John Winthrop was the first governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Now, these people all knew each other, and they very often spoke of each other fondly, and they very often interacted freely with each other, but they are two distinct. Entities And the only religious liberty in the Massachusetts Bay Colony is the liberty to practice religion as the Puritans viewed it. They too, however, embraced a congregational form of government. And here's part of the reason that we tend to think of them interchangeably. What religious form of government did they practice? Well, they were all congregationalists. The pilgrims were congregational by conviction. Churches don't answer to anybody. The Puritans were congregational almost by default. We can't be a part of the Church of England. And so churches are going to be congregational in their viewpoint. In 1629, right, I read from a 1651 law that the pilgrims passed. In 1629, right about the time the colony is established, the colony decrees that all labor will cease at 3 p.m. on Saturday so that people could prepare for the Sabbath. Right, so, so one, of the, one of the laws of the civil government is that all businesses close at 3 o'clock on Saturday. All farmers retire from their field at 3 o'clock on Saturday so that you may devote the rest of the day to being ready for church on Sunday. This is a law of the land. In 1631, the colony declared that no citizenship in the colony will be extended to anybody who is not a proper Anglican. In 1638, Massachusetts Bay passed a law that all who would not support the church financially voluntarily will be levied an assessment for support. Now, I like that law, right? Hey, you don't want to contribute to Westwood Heights Baptist Church financially voluntarily? Fine. We will tax you. And you say, who's we? City of Omaha. State of Nebraska, we're coming. We're going right to your employer. We're going, take it out of the check. 1638, mandatory church attendance is imposed. Mandatory church attendance is imposed. You are fined or imprisoned for violation. There is, needless to say, folks, absolutely no toleration of Roman Catholicism within Massachusetts Bay Colony. In 1644, the colony passed a law that banished Baptists or anybody else who refused to baptize infants. And in 1658, Quakers were banished from the colony and subjected to execution if they returned. And in fact, they actually did hang a couple of Quakers. Now... Again, I'm not really trying to do a big religious history, but in the early days, in colonial days folks, the Quakers were a real challenge to the Puritans and the Pilgrims and the Baptists and to everybody else. We tend to think of them as, let's be realistic, we tend to think of most of them as the Quaker Oats people. And we just tend to think of them as these nice, amiable people who are pacifists in their nature and who may or may not have said things like I would do thee no harm, but you are standing where I am about to shoot. But the truth is, folks, that they were absolute religious radicals and they had this conviction that they were being led by God personally and individually apart from the Bible, and at times the Quakers would gather and would actually burn Bibles to demonstrate their commitment to being led by the inner light. Right. So here we sit in 2024, and we would be reasonably amenable to Quakers, but if we got out of church this morning and in the middle of the parking lot they were lighting a bonfire burning Bibles to make a point, we would probably view them differently by evening service. So in 1691, when James II, and and by 1691, the the dominion of New England is already up and running, and again, there's a whole history there. But it will eventually include all of the New England colonies and New York. And he will just go, basically, I I reject all of your colonial governments. I'm sending a guy, the most famous one of which was Edmund Andros. And he's going to tell you guys what to do, and you're going to do it. And that's the way that it's going to be because these are my colonies and you're Englishmen and you answer to me. So in 1691, the the pilgrim community, Plymouth Colony, is rolled into Massachusetts Bay Colony. And the whole thing is supposed to become much more tolerant religiously. It is supposed to embrace, right, the, the pilgrim ideal, of religious to- tolerance, but it is also going to embrace the Puritan model of government, which is that civil governments have religious missions. So this province again will be Massachusetts, Maine, portions of New Hampshire, New York, New England, it's all going to be rolled into there. <clears throat> all right, so that's the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And then what happens? because again folks right we do not live out our doctrines in vacuums or in laboratories we live them out in the real world now if you are living in that part of the world you have to you're no longer interacting with the church of england as such you're interacting with the puritans and their view of religious practices and their view of religious governments <clears throat> New Hampshire is formed in 1629 and then ultimately rolled into, and it will, of course, the, the colonies reject the dominion of New England, but England accepts it. And anyway, you, you know how that went, right? George Washington and all that kind of stuff. Um, <clears throat> in 1679, New Hampshire became a royal colony, separate, and is primarily congregational. Rhode Island is established in 1663. And of course, the guy that we credit with establishing Rhode Island is Roger Williams. And sometimes you're told that Roger Williams was a Baptist, and he was for about as long as me to say that took me to say the sentence. Um, That's how long Roger Williams was a Baptist. Roger Williams was an hardcore separatist. and, And I will come back to that a little bit at the end. It is, it is, he is the separatist's separate. So that Roger Williams literally ends his life in fellowship with nobody but his wife, and I'm not exaggerating. Nobody but his wife. Nobody's nobody's doing it right. Just us. Connecticut is established in 1636. It is a Puritan colony. It is the Connecticut, specifically Hartford, which is what I mean. They didn't. These people weren't establishing states, folks. They were establishing villages. Uh, Thomas Hooker, who is generally regarded as the founder of Connecticut, first went to the Massachusetts Bay Colony, a Puritan colony. He was a Puritan. But in Massachusetts Bay, you couldn't vote unless you belonged to the church, and you couldn't belong to the church. We'll get into this. Right there is a, In the earliest days, there is a lengthy established process for joining the church. And one of those is is that you have to be able to give a detailed testimony, not only of your salvation, but of the evidences of God's grace in your life. And if you could not do that, you could not join the church. And so this was something that became very important to the Puritans. And, and we'll, again, we'll get into this because the, 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 their driving idea is what is known as the visible church. Right? We are a visible church. And so if you're going to be a part of our visible church, you're going to have to be able to stand up here and explain to us your salvation narrative and the evidences that you can give in your life to demonstrate that your salvation narrative is genuine. right? Sometimes in the academy, I've had kids write out their testimony, tell me when you got saved. right? <clears throat> tell me what's going on in your life today that demonstrates you got saved when you got saved five years ago or ten years ago. These are the kind of things that they... In any event, Massachusetts Bay would only let you vote in political elections if you were a member of the church. And Thomas Hooker, who was a Puritan, thought that was too extreme. He thought that voting rights, political voting rights, should be extended to everybody who was a free member of the community. So if you were an indentured servant, no. If you were a slave, no. If you were a woman, no. But if you were a free man, then you had right to vote, even if you didn't belong to the established church. Connecticut is where Jonathan Edwards is born, and where we lived. Connecticut is, of course, the home of Yale University, but Yale is actually established in another what will be colony and then rolled into the state, and that is New Haven. New Haven was a separate colony. So, all right, all that. I need to wind this down. By the end of the 1600s, right, by 1691, Here are some of the consequences of the Massachusetts colonies on American thinking. They have tackled, addressed, and to their satisfaction answered the question of what the role of civil government is in religious matters. That government does have a role. It does have the power to enforce religious rules. The pilgrims <clears throat> separated from National England and the, and the church in Plymouth Colony, to go back to, the, to William Bradford and the Plymouth Colony, they viewed themselves as a branch of the church that still existed in Holland, not a part of the Church of England. Secondly, folks, and here's one of the things that we really don't want to miss the Puritans provide to us tremendous insight what it looks like when people go from being a persecuted minority to a religious majority. The Puritans were a very small part of the Church of England most Anglicans were not Puritans and so they suffered at the hands of the majority and yet when they became the majority others suffered at their hands and I think this is particularly noteworthy because we're living in a day in which there is an increasing movement towards Christian nationalism I don't think it's going to go anywhere Modern-day Christian nationalists like to maintain that only a modest set of rules would suffice. Doug Wilson, and I'm not trying to pick on Doug Wilson, but Doug Wilson is one of the leading lights of the Christian nationalist movement. He actually has written an article about the fact that Virginia, an English colony, at once whipped a bunch of Baptists, or several Baptists for their religious views, and has gone to point out that Christian nationalism in the 21st century need not look like that. To which I would reply, but it always has. When Oliver Cromwell went from being part of a persecuted minority to becoming almost the head, the, the head of England and almost the king of England, he used that power to enforce every religious rule that he could upon the English people. So much so, folks, that they wanted to have the king back. So when we talk about Christian nationalism, and realistically, right, it would be a wonderful thing to have the laws favor righteousness rather than unrighteousness and the majority favor God rather than favor atheism. But the reality is that if we were to find ourselves in charge, we probably couldn't be trusted in the way we handled it and I'm going to I'm just going to throw this in right here folks this is this is it's not it's not a question that I can answer but it is a question that I ask of myself on a regular experience because I don't think that this is just at a national level right I think it exists at a local church level as well what is the responsibility of an individual congregation to dominate the faith of its members? At what point in time does a pastor who is not the Lord of God's heritage by biblical definition cross the threshold in his conduct to function like he is the Lord over God's heritage? These are not not just dumb questions. We live out these answers. Right, here's, here's part of what the Puritan covenant was, and I real, I'm going I'm to move through this very quickly. Right, we do humbly, solemnly, religiously, as in, the mo, as in his most holy presence, promise and bind ourselves to walk in all our ways according to the rule of the gospel and in all sincere conformity to his holy ordinances and in mutual love and respect to each other so near as God shall give us grace. And yet Roger Williams was rejected because he would not join the public, the Boston congregation because it would not publicly repudiate its association with the churches of England, right? To be a Puritan, folks, was to be at heart an Anglican. An Anglican who thought so highly of the Church of England that you wanted nothing more for it than for it to return to its glory. And Roger Williams, the separatist separatist, said, if you colonial church will not repudiate your association with the Church of England, then I will not social with you. And then he ended up taking it a step further in another church and said to members of the congregation, now when you go back to England, you're not permitted to go to a Church of England church service or else you're going to lose your membership here. He just kept going with all of that. So he ends up in Rhode Island and he establishes Providence Plantation and now we have Rhode Island, the bastion of freedom, for which we're grateful. In 1651, the Congregationalists in Boston, Massachusetts Bay Colony, Puritan stronghold, punished the Baptist Obadiah Holmes to 30 lashes with the whip. What did he do? He was a Baptist. He wouldn't baptize babies and he wouldn't practice Puritan religion. He and several others were sentenced and fined. Obadiah Holmes was fined 30 pounds. He refused to pay 30 pounds, so he was whipped 30 times. Later witnesses, folks, said that Obadiah Holmes, after that, for a period of time until he healed, lived on his elbows and his knees. He was so severely beaten for not being a Puritan, for not following the rules. Quakers received similar treatment. It was not uncommon for Quaker women to be stripped and searched because people believed that the devil, when he, and they believed that most Quakers were satanic, and these people believed that Satan branded his followers in some way. And it was, of course, always supposed to be done with discretion and decorum and ladies searching ladies, although there were testimonies of Quakers who went, yeah, he was wearing a dress, but it wasn't a woman that searched me. It became illegal for any Puritan to bring a Quaker into the colony. And in 1656, Massachusetts went a step further and ordered the right ear of all Quakers to be removed. That way we can tell who you are quite easily. So <clears throat> what does it look like, folks, when a persecuted minority gets the upper hand? That's an interesting question. Right. History tells us that it doesn't go very well for the next group of minority people. Anyway, all right, let's stop there. I have extended my time. Happy always to talk with you privately to entertain your questions. We'll be back at 11 o'clock.